the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, oh, the sounds planets would make traveling through space in a Star Wars movie, black helicopters and cone-headed alien menace. Plus, we continue our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have a roundtable discussion with the editor and authors with stories in new sports-oriented science fiction anthology, Galactic Games. The anthology is just in time for the Olympics this summer, and frankly, probably a lot more interesting and less likely to give you the Zika virus. Bain contributing editor David F. Sharirod, no stranger to these podcasts, hosts this one, and it includes Galactic Games editor Brian Thomas Schmidt and authors Louise Marley, Mike Resnick, and Gray Reinhardt. And we continue with the second installment of our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. That's coming up. Here's the news. The June hardcovers and original trade paperbacks are out. It's a reading stampede out there, but the kind where you want to get trampled. First, we have David Drake's new entry in his RCN Leary and Mundi military science fiction series, Death's Bright Day. In this one, Leary and Mundi must go on an unofficial mission to a galactic backwater planet to forestall a new outbreak of the war between the Republic of Cinnabar and the totalitarian alliance of free stars. This one is action-packed, and it starts out with Daniel Leary getting married. We had an interview with Dave on a previous podcast talking about this book. Also out is a great new collection of stories edited by John Ringo and Gary Poole. All these stories are set in John Ringo's Black Tide Rising world, where a zombie outbreak has laid waste to much of our planet. But the remnant of remaining humans is fighting back. It's really a story about those humans in John's books. There are some excellent and very tasty stories in this one, especially if you like brains. And if you liked John Ringo's Black Tide Rising series, you're going to love this collection of great writers and their different takes on John's world. Also at Booksellers is Galactic Games, edited by Brian Thomas Schmidt. This is our sports-themed anthology that you'll hear more about in a moment. And don't forget, there's yet another anthology. Wow, this is short fiction month here. Edited by David F. Sharirod, who hosts the Roundtable interview this time. This one is the year's best military and adventure SF 2015. It's called 2015, of course, because it's the best of all last year's stories that David has gleaned from all of the uh, various venues. It's filled with the best of the best short stories published in the magazines, original anthologies, and online venues of last year. David literally reads everything out there with short fiction in preparation for his year's best anthology which is the reason I always like to have him host our interviews here at the Bain Free Radio Hour when we're talking about short fiction, because he's likely already read the stories or needs to read them for his anthology. 
Desperate Day by David Drake, Black Tide Rising, edited by John Ringo and Gary Poole, Galactic Games, edited by Brian Thomas Schmidt, and The Year's Best Military and Adventure SF 2015, edited by David F. Sharirod, are all available at booksellers everywhere. Hello there, sports fans. This is the Bain Free Radio Hour, and I am David Afsharirod. It's a pleasure to be with you here today and with our guests. We're going to be taking science fiction out of the reading room and putting it into the arena with a new anthology of short stories edited by Brian Thomas Schmidt. It's called Galactic Games, and it pairs uh, sporting events, Olympic uh, athletes, a little bit of gaming, uh, some football, some baseball, all that good stuff with science fiction, and it is out now from Bain Books. I'd like to introduce our panel here. Uh, joining me is Brian Thomas Schmidt. In addition to editing Galactic Games, he is the Hugo-nominated editor of Mission Tomorrow and Shattered Shields. Both of those are available from Bain Books, and Shattered Shields, we should say, he co-edited with Jennifer Brozek. Uh, he has also edited The Raygun Chronicles, Decision Points, and Beyond the Sun, among other titles. He is also an author in his own right. His debut novel, The Worker Prince, received honorable mention on Barnes & Noble's Year's Best Science Fiction Releases of 2011. Uh, Brian, thanks so much. It's great to talk with you again. Good to be with you, David. All right, we also have Louise Marley with us here. She is a multi-award winning writer of science fiction and fantasy. Her first career was as a classical singer, uh, and that fact has influenced much of her work, especially her first novel, Mozart's Blood. She also writes historical fiction under the pseudonym Kate Campbell. This is her first time on the Bain Free Radio Hour, so we'll go easy on her. Uh, Louise, thanks so much for joining it with us. Thanks. I've been looking forward to it. All right. And I am pleased to welcome back to the podcast Mr. Mike Resnick. He is, according to Locus, the all-time leading award-winning author, living or dead, for short fiction. He's the winner of five Hugos from a record 37 nomination. He's got a Nebula as well as major awards from around the world. He's the author of six novels, over 250 short stories, one of which is in Galactic Games, and three, excuse me, three screenplays. He's also an editor of some repute. Uh, his uh, online and ebook magazine, Galaxy's Edge, uh, is uh, something I look forward to reading every other month. Uh, and uh, if you guys know, I edit. Bain's Year's Best Military and Adventure SF, and uh, I found quite a lot of material in uh, Galaxy's Edge. Um, we talked with, I talked with Mike about The Worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, which was an anthology he co-edited a few years back. That's in the archives if you want to dig it up. Uh, Mike, so glad to talk with you again. Well, it's very nice to be back. I'd like to make one correction. There's a typo in there. I'm egomaniacal enough to point it out. I have 76 novels, not six. And oh, seventy! I thought that's to be Louise Marley. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought six seemed. Uh, I thought six seemed low, but uh, anyways. Um, <laughs> all right, and also joining us is a uh, Gray Reinhardt. He has worn many hats in his day. He's fought rocket propellant fires, refurbished space launch facilities, and commanded the Air Force's largest satellite tracking station among other things. He also writes from time to time and is a contributing editor at Bain Books. His short stories have appeared in Analog and Asimov's. He's also quite the singer-songwriter and filker. He's got two albums of mostly science fiction and fantasy-inspired music. Um, 
Gray, I don't know if I can say this. I'll edit it out if I can't. But you've also uh, just had a novel accepted. Your first novel will be coming out from Kevin J. Anderson's Wordfire Press. Um, so, anyways, great. Thanks for uh, thanks for being here. Oh, I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Guess who's editing his novel from Wordfire? Is that? Well, let me. Is it Brian Thomas Schmidt? Is that? Yes, it is. All right. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> I just I just got back from hanging out with um, Kevin and the guys there. I was at the booth at uh, Dallas Fan Expo, so uh, that was a lot of fun. That was the first one of those I'd gotten to do. So uh, it's all one big happy science fiction family, I guess. Uh, but we are here to talk about Galactic Games uh, today. It is, as I said, is an anthology of twenty short stories, and all of them have to do with sports or games of some kind. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about was uh, that many of them concern the Galactic Games, capital G, capital G, which is a sort of an Olympics on a, well, a galactic scale. Um, Brian, I think you would be the man to answer this. Could you talk a little bit about what the Galactic Games are and uh, where the idea came from and um, just some of the approaches the different authors um, took, to, took to that idea? Well, nobody can answer that question because truthfully, all I did was name the anthology Galactic Games, but... The original concept, I, I was toying with doing, you know, a, a Galactic Games is like a, totally an Olympics and have every story revolve around that. But as time developed and we saw some really good reprints that didn't fit into that, that we could get, I kind of opened it up. And some of the people decided to write their stories as a Galactic game, and some did not. But there was no set of rules or parameters for that. So everybody Galactic Games kind of probably work a little different. That's why it's not totally consistent, but it was just kind of an overall concept of what if, you know, what if if everybody in the galaxy got together for what if the new Olympics was basically, you know, galactic instead of just being on Earth. So that that's basically where it came from, and and it kind of you know it kind of went from there. Um, I mean, all several of the stories, even like you know Mike's story, for example, the Olympians would fit into uh, that concept in some ways, although it's called the Olympians. You know, and some of those stories would fit in even though they're reprints, but mo mostly uh, it's just kind of a free-form concept. Okay, yeah, so just grew organically then from uh, people picking up on the title. It's interesting, yeah. Um, well, one thing I wanted to talk about, too, is uh, with this anthology, and I think we've got a good group of people here to talk about it, is we've got um, a couple baseball baseball stories, um, Jack Haldeman and... Uh, Gene Wolfe, sort of, kind of, the weirdest baseball story ever, maybe, uh, in a good way, but it's weird. Um, we've got football from George R. R. Martin, but generally, um, these were uh, takes on different types of games and sports that don't get um, a lot of airtime, maybe, you know? And I thought that was one thing that appealed to me, is that uh, we've got Louise's story is gymnastics, uh, Gray is sort of uh, something he invented, but he tells it from a referee's point of view. Um, a lot of Olympic stuff. And was that something you were after, Brian? You said you were kind of thinking this was originally going to be an Olympic-themed uh, anthology. Yeah, I, I I asked people to tell me what sport, and I tried to keep every sport different. Now, technically, Gene Wolfe's story is about softball played from speedboats, and the Jay Hall's story is about baseball. So technically, uh, they are different sports. But see where you're coming right. from. And we do have three stories that reflect racing or running, but they're different kinds. And two different kinds of shooting stories. So I kind of have some crossover, but the main idea was to have everybody do a different sport. And I figure even in the, even in the real Olympics, you've got multiple events for swimming and multiple events for, 
different kind running and different things. So I figured I could get away with a little bit of parallel. But I tried to do sports that, that were, you know, everybody doing something unique. And I tried also to get things that had never been done. I own five or six of the previous anthologies that have been done of, of sports. Most of them were done in the late 70s, early 80s. There have been a couple since that I know of, and there's probably some I'm missing. But most of the sports, you know, they got, there were a lot of football and a lot of baseball and a lot of things, but there, some of these other sports didn't get covered. So I wanted to cover some unique ground, too, so bring some new stuff into the whole, you know, sci-fi sports kind of genre, so to speak. Yeah, well, I, I think you did, certainly. Um, I want to do one more kind of question, and this maybe can open up to everybody, and uh, then we'll talk about the individual stories a little bit. But um, I will confess, I'm not a huge sports fan, um, but even not really being someone who follows sports much, I always enjoy reading about sports. Um, and I just was thinking we could talk about um, what is it that makes sporting events such a natural um, milieu for fiction writers to work in? Um, and I realized uh, some, maybe something we can jump off on when I was reading these, this book for the podcast is um, many of these stories, and perhaps all of them, at least in some ways, uh, the sporting event is certainly its own um, drama in and of itself, but it often stands in for something larger so maybe there's something there um I, brian you can start and well, sorry 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 the thing about sports is that you know there, there's a natural conflict involved in sports that comes out of competitiveness and there's also a competitiveness to our human nature that is something that many of us struggle with the whole everything from you know any form of bigotry to other things have to do with wanting to you know wanting to be superior in some way to something else or thinking you're superior or, you know, sibling rivalry, same thing. So, I mean, there's a natural inclination, particularly in the Western world. The Eastern world is more, more intends to be more community-oriented. We're, we tend to be more self-oriented and more of a, you know, every man for himself kind of attitude. It perpetuates that. So that lends itself in sports very much to the sense of every man for himself competing. So that theme ties into a lot of outside themes and that's where I think it connects with other themes that come in like there's a kidnapping story and and there's you know and and of course you know I wanted to get the referee's side and you know some of the other there's a guy who runs there's a person who runs the office and Todd McCaffrey's story and has to coordinate kind of some of the sports and you see some of their administrative problems so I mean I think they're all related to it and there's conflict outside of the sports but the conflict in the sports kind of makes a nice parallel yeah, uh, Louise or Mike or Gray, do you have anything you wanted to maybe add to that? Well, I do. You actually, I think you already said it because it, the it, the thing is that in any sports competition, there is inherent drama and conflict. So that makes it uh, a great uh, uh, basis for fiction because the conflict is already there. And as you say, it often represents something deeper. I'm not sure that's true when we're actually watching a sporting event or if we're fans of a particular sport, but certainly when it comes to fiction, having um, a sports competition can be a great way to explore other themes that have to do with competition, or I like what Brian said about sibling rivalry, because human beings naturally do have rivalries, and so it gives you a lot to work with as a writer. Yeah, well, um, Louis, since you are, I've got you on the hook, let's talk about your story a little bit. Um this one, it uh, there's a lot in here, um, <clears throat> but it concerns gymnastics. Um, 
specific, yeah, that's the, that's the sport and an Olympic, uh, event. And, um, actually, uh, one of my favorite crime writers, Megan Abbott is writing a kind of a gymnastics noir. And I was reading some of the things she was saying when researching it and how it's, it's so high stress. It's such a high stakes world, just like any sporting event is, but it's often on the shoulders of very young girls, which, you know, is not the case with most other sports. Um, and, uh, I think, uh, you do a lot of putting other things on this young girl's, uh, shoulders. And, um, maybe you could just give us the setup of the story and, uh, like I would say, whet the reader's appetite. The story is about a girl who is, uh, the only child on a very small colony on the uh, asteroid Kurifna, which is a real, a real asteroid. Um, and there's, the, the nice thing is there's plenty of backstory to go with it. Her mother has left and she's alone there with her father and all her people. And she wants to be a gymnast. And of course, there's no one to coach her. So they bring out a robot that's not got anything to do and program the robot to be her coach. And so when she goes to the, um, I forget the actual number of the Olympiad, but competitors are coming from around the solar system, actually, not the galaxy necessarily. They're all human in this case. But, you know, it, it, we end up getting to play with um, enhanced human beings, for example, post-humans, um, competing with a natural human being, which is a theme that I have visited before. We also get to deal with the, the um, use of younger people by older people or corporations, in this case political um, organizations, for their own ends. And I think actually in the actual Olympics that we have on planet in contemporary times, that's exactly what happens, that a lot of the, maybe not in the United States, but certainly it was true in Russia and some of the other communist countries where the Olympians were hardworking slaves. And there was a lot of glory if you won, but there was a lot of torture if you didn't. So those are some of the things that I could play with. I didn't know anything about yeah, gymnastics other than I liked watching it. So I read a biography, an autobiography of a gymnast and did a lot of uh, research online. It was it was great fun. I loved the sport. But boy, it is hard on those girls and boys too. But the boys tend to be a little bit older, so it's the the girls at 12 and 13 and 14 that really really work hard and sometimes are badly injured. Yeah, and you touch on that. And yeah, I was going to ask you if you had been involved in gymnastics or knew someone that did, but because it did feel like you, so your research paid off. I've always admired the sport, and I think for me it appeals, I was a classical singer, it appeals because it has that artistic element as well as the really extreme sports element. The thing these kids, the things these kids do are amazing in real life, and so fictionally you can really, you can go even farther. Yeah, it's one of those sports, I mean, I guess this is true of anything that people do at the top of their game, so to speak, but it looks so easy, and then you think, you know, I could barely, you know, you're spinning around a bar holding on, like, try that, you know, I don't know, so, um, yeah. <laughs> um, um, I was going to talk, yeah, <laughs> Um, I was going to ask you to talk a little bit. You touched on it. One thing I thought was interesting is this story does deal with um, hints at what who counts as human in a way. Uh, you know, is this robot coach, um, is that going to be allowed, uh, you know, to have a, a robot coaching uh, this uh, girl, um, Zori? And also um, something that we're seeing now is things, uh, you know, when we talk about 
what what counts as too much uh, enhancement, right? Is wearing a certain type of swimsuit is that cheating or is it okay? Is it what about steroids? And in this story, you have um, uh, gymnasts who um, have been genetically modified. So maybe you could talk about that, that a little bit. Yeah, well, I, I um, it kind of revisits the theme of people being used by corporations <laughs> because these these um, gymnasts have been genetically modified in order to work on their various planets and um, space stations and asteroids. So they have extra limbs, and some of them have so many limbs they're barely they can barely walk, but they're great in the air or in in weightlessness that sort of thing. And I think that as we go forward, I'm not certainly not the first writer to take this on in terms of sports, but how much modification is allowed um, and how much will ultimately be deemed not acceptable, as we've done currently with baseball as the sport I know the best. And 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 since steroids went out of – became illegal and, and the players could really get prosecuted for them and kicked out of the game for them, that changes the face of the sport quite a bit. That I wrote a different story for a different uh, forum um, about a, a modified, genetically modified woman who was the first contemporary professional baseball pitcher. And so it was fun looking at that because there is going to be a point probably where we have to make, it'll be part of the rules, how much modification is acceptable. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, well, let's... Uh... I think uh, leave some the, some of the more Olympic sports for just a moment and talk about Gray's story. Um, Gray, you, this is one that is um, one of the one of a few in the book that are, that doesn't really have a real world counterpart. You kind of made this up, although it bears resemblance. Um, what is it, Mara Cal Calva, Cal, something like that? Um, I'll let you pronounce it. There you go. Um, bears resemblance to some real world things, but this is something you came up with, right? Because it's a, um, well, I'll let you introduce it in a second, but first I want to talk about one of your court store, uh, characters in your story says, um, the line, no one cares about referees. Um, but this is a story about a referee and I did care about him. Um, but I do think the point's a good one, which is that, um, except for when maybe they make a bad call, no one really cares about the referees. There's not a lot of, um, biographies of great referees being written um so what drew you to so tell us first what drew you to the idea about writing about a referee and then also maybe um you can explain the game and the setup of the story uh, as well well i didn't decide to write about the referee right away uh, it was kind of odd how all of this came together i had been reading about the unlikely friendships that had developed between allied officers and specifically German officers after World War II. And it got me thinking about, as we have prosecuted these conflicts, and then the uneasy piece that starts off, and, and hopefully develops into a better piece down the road that that might be a similar situation with some uh, interstellar species. And I wanted to, to have the story take place in a way that those tensions were still real, which to me said if the if the games could possibly be 
a mode of cementing this peace, there would be factions that didn't want that peace, and they might try to disrupt them. And so that led me thinking about the Munich games. And I didn't want to just retell that historical story, but it started me thinking that, you know, one of the reasons that when the Palestinians took over the compound and were threatening the athletes, one of the reasons that resonated so much was because every country had sent athletes and were emotionally invested in the athletes they sent. So they could feel this is what it might be like if they had taken our athletes hostage. But really, if they had threatened the officials, I'm not sure people would have cared quite so much. <laughs> and that's how I ended up with that. Okay, I'm going to be in this position and see if I can make something out of that. But if, right. if you're it's like threatening the editor instead of the writer. <laughs> I'm thinking if the officials held up little cards and rated the uh, kidnappers during it, it would be more interesting. But you know, like <laughs> I give them a five. Well, yeah. So a great story. Um, just to kind of lay it out for people, there's this um, race of uh, aliens called the Aurelian. I think I'm saying that right. Um, I hope I am. And they're sort of um, ursine-looking, uh, and we've been at war with them until very, very recently, right? And uh, <clears throat> we're playing this uh, game that was sort of a... The game itself is sort of an uneasy compromise. There's things um, taken from human games and then Aurelian games and sort of cobbled together to make something that maybe both sides can play. And this is the, this is the big match between the, the humans and the uh, Aurelians. Um, and I guess a lot, a lot rides on it, as you're saying. The, the idea of putting all of these things together um, came from my sort of being tired of seeing things get put together and mashed up in in <laughs> odd ways. But it also re was something that I remembered from my time in the Air Force that when. We were at squadron officer school. They made us play this mixed up, made up game that nobody liked because it was mixed up and made up and it didn't follow the rules of any games that we knew from, from either playing them or from childhood. And the very nature of it was off-putting. And I thought, you know, if you're dealing with an alien species, it's one thing to say that you know, we're going to go play water polo against an aquatic species. We're going to lose. But it's another thing to say that what we're going to do is we're going to try to craft something where neither side has a clear advantage and see if we can't level the playing field in that way. So it is a kludged up mess that nobody really likes, but they're playing for pride. Yeah, and we actually, in um, George R. R. Martin's story, the title of which um, eludes me, but um, they're playing football, but they're playing against these aliens that are just 
clearly built for football. And so um, what do you do in that situation? So uh, in the Grey Reinhardt story, we have you make up a different game that no one likes, I guess, is the solution. <laughs> so, um, and, that, and that was part of what the deal was, was if this is, if the idea is that what we're trying to do is to bridge the gap and try to provide well, I'll give I'll, I'll reference um, Douglas MacArthur's quote that he said, you know, long, long ago, to encourage athletic pursuits at within the military was on the field of friendly strife are sown the seeds that at other times on other fields will bear the fruit of victory, and I was trying to turn that around to say. Perhaps out of that unfriendly strife, perhaps out of that conflict, we could use friendly strife, athletics, as a surrogate and cement good relations. Yeah, um, I think that definitely comes across. There's Because the main character, the main referee, uh, the main human referee, uh, his grandfather actually fought... Uh, in the war, right, um, in this. So he has a very direct connection when he's sitting next to his counterpart, alien counterpart, like, you know, what, 20, 50 years ago, you know, this wouldn't have happened um, in the story. So, yeah. Um, well, kind of talking about that, talking about beating, uh, trying, or tr attempting to beat aliens at their own game, Let's, uh, that's a perfect little uh, segue into Mike Resnick's story. Um, and in this story, uh, it, this is, a, this is a, a race story, and it's about an Olympian with a capital O. And that is something pretty specific in this story. Uh, so, Mike, maybe you could tell us um, who the Olympians are and uh, what's their, what is their mission, so to speak. Yeah, I, I should explain at the beginning that for the whole of my 50-plus year career, I've tried to write against the grain, which is to say when I was in a Batman anthology, I wrote about Batman's haberdasher. And in the Superman anthology, I wrote about the doctor who found Clark Kent 4F for World War II. And this was uh, the same kind of thing. Uh, a, this is about a long-distance race, in a competitive setting, and ordinarily you would think that uh, the motivating force for anybody in the race would be to win and prove they're the best. But this is a story about how humanity is expanding throughout the galaxy, building its reputation, and picking its spots very carefully so that it has never lost one of these competitions. And this is uh, about a runner who with the finish line almost in sight, is 15 or 20 yards behind. And what motivates him is not the desire to win. It's the desire not to be the one who lost, the one they all remember. And I consider that a much stronger motivating force. Yeah, I, you. well, you took my next question. But yeah, I love that. Is um, It's the anonymity of success in this story, right? If you um, win... Then instead of being the hero for winning, you're just one of a many winners. Who cares? But if you lose, then you're the you're the guy who lost. You're the only human who lost, and you're the one they'll all remember. Right, right. Yeah, I thought that was a very clever twist. Look, uh, uh, from what Wordfire, a collection of all 
science fiction sports stories. And I do that in a number of them. Uh, in, in basketball, the assumption has always been, you know, you play with a high degree of emotion. That's what makes you better. And uh, I had a robot who was dominating the league, the first to play, and the audiences got turned off because he showed no emotion. So they programmed him with some, never realizing that he would not only want to win for his team, but he would feel enormous sympathy for the people who were overmatched against him. And uh, you can do that with almost any sporting event or indeed any any, any event whatsoever. Yeah, so um, just, I'm, I think we probably clarified it, but I'm going to just to be safe. So this is, uh, as you said, humanity is expanding out into the, the galaxy. And we challenge, human, human beings challenge, um, you know, whatever sport is the sport on, that, on an alien planet that is the, the height They're, of their they ability. They think they can win. That they think they can win, right. In, in this, if you, know, you go to a, a world and participate in a sport where they didn't think they could win. Right. Yeah, but they think they can they, they, uh This air of invincibility. Right. So it's... it's and, and you you talk about this with the Olympics, especially back during the Cold War, where um, it was very much a surrogate for the might of the Russians versus us, right? And this is what humanity is doing. We want to we want to appear to be supermen, and so we challenge people to things and we beat them. And uh, uh, not too popular for that, but I guess it it does something for our reputation, uh, I suppose. But um, this was I just wanted to also talk about the history of this a little bit, if you would, because I I read in the Brian's intro that this was part of a novel. I did a novel in 1982 called Birthright. And it consisted of 28 chapters, each of them a short story in itself, about man's expansion into the galaxy and finally his contraction. And uh, each each of the stories was, was very similar to this in that it would take one item, be it law or sports or whatever, and examine what happened <clears throat> when man went out into the galaxy. And it created a future in which I have said, I think, something like 35 novels and maybe 20 stories. So it was very useful to me in that respect. And I excerpted the story in 1984 for a Marty Greenberg anthology and never thought of it again until Brian asked for it. Yeah, I was going to ask you what you, we, we went through your credentials uh, where you had much more, many more novels than I thought I had written down. Uh, but also over 250 short stories. I was just wondering, what is that like when you haven't thought of a story in, what is that, 20 plus years, and then you get an email or a phone call? It was very, very flattering and very uh, unexpected. I mean, there's some stories I've sold more than 30 times. This certainly wasn't one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe this will be the, the first of the... We only got twenty more times to go. Brian, how did you find this thing? Was it in? Uh, you said it was in that Martin Greenberg anthology. Was that where you ran it, or where did you unearth this little gem? Yeah, I came across it in Birthright, which I own. I came across it also okay. again in the, in the Greenberg anthology. And when Mike and I started talking about what he would do for this, whether it would be original or that, I kind of gave him the choice: Do you want to do something original, or you want me to reprint something like you know the Olympians? Because you've got he's got a lot of sports stories. As he said, he's got his own. He's kind of got his own collection of sports stories. So I basically gave him that option, and this is what we decided to do because this one has not been reprinted much. 
So it was kind of like, you know, it's like finding a new story. When you get a story that hasn't been reprinted in like 20 years, um, especially by somebody who is uh, who is still known as a as one of the top writers in the field, you're basically getting a new story. The same thing happened with the Kladnar race story that I got from Randall Garrett and Silverberg. That hadn't been reprinted in like 28 years. And so, you know, yeah, it was basically the, like... I, I do I'm want sorry. to say that you know, we don't work in vacuums. Um, I couldn't think of a title for my collection, my sports collection, so I asked my listserv, which is a few hundred fans, and we exchange emails every day, and they came up with the title. And I think it's perfect for science fiction sports stories. Away games. That's oh, nice. Good, yeah. That's fabulous. <laughs> Uh, they gave me one other years ago, the first collection of humor I, I did. Uh, this was just when the ads for Alien, Remember in Space, No One Can Hear You Scream, were coming out. And it was, in space, no one can hear you laugh. <laughs> so it's nice to have a listserv on days I can't come up with a title. All right, all you young, aspiring authors, that is, there you go. Get a listserv. I will also, I'm going to plug Bane Books, which is, there was that anthology Bane did called In Space No One Can Hear You Scream of science fiction horror stories uh, that Hank put together, which we talked about again a few years ago. Um, well, this is great. I, I love the, uh, I love that this Mike, Mike Resnick story, so I'm glad that you unearthed it. And I like that um, the Randall Garrett uh, Silverberg story was also great. And that was one, actually, I saw some buzz on the, uh, the internet, when the table of contents uh, of this got posted, people were excited to see that one back in print. Some, uh, so check it out, everyone. <laughs> that one is, uh, is, 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 is like a horse. In fact, it's funny. The reason Mike didn't write a new one about horse racing was because I had the Gladnar story, which is basically about horse racing, but it's set with an alien kind of horse on an alien world. And I, I was like, I've already got it. I've already got the horse racing, you know, and that was another factor in getting the Olympian. So it really worked out well yeah, in I, a lot of ways. I should explain, uh, as Brian knows, I'm a horse racing fanatic. I never bet. But for 11 years, I did a weekly column on racing, and I still write for the occasionally for the major horse racing magazines. And so far, I've only managed two science fiction horse racing stories in half a century. Well, is there anything we have not touched on? Um, I mean, I can talk a little bit about some of the other stories if you want. Yeah, why don't you give everyone a little tease? Um, we, uh, Larry Korea, we had hoped to have on, but he was not able to join us in Mercedes Lackey. Um, he's got one of the uh, shooter uh, stories. Um, and, uh, yeah, why don't, you, why don't you give someone a tease, and then we'll wrap it up here. Well, Mercedes Lackey wrote a 1,500-meter race running story. And um, so that uh, a running story. And then you've got Bob Reed, who is a runner in real life. Robert Reed wrote a, a different kind of kind of a extreme. The other running story is basically an extreme version of Survivor where you start naked and it's like 10,000 people running. And, and there's all these obstacles you have to go through, including being naked and survive and win the race. So it was like the ultimate extreme sport kind of thing. Um, you mentioned George. George has a really great football story called Run to Starlight. And the conceit of it is, is similar to the conceit of the Jay Haldeman story, which are basically, which is baseball, which is basically that, okay, the aliens want to conquer our world. We're going to defend ourselves. Let's challenge them to a sport they can never win. Oops. <laughs> that's, the, 
that's the concept, basically, of both those stories. And the Haldeman was is, is rather, uh, for those who don't know, Jay Haldeman is, he's deceased, but he is of Joe Haldeman's brother. And he is, uh, right. he's known a lot for his humor, for his humor writing. Um, yeah, I and used to uh, work with and edit Jay Haldeman a bit, and uh, he he was just about as good as Joe. He was he, that's a hell of a family. Yeah, the talented guys. Um, and then we we also have a basketball Mars rules story where a guy immigrates or goes to live on Mars and has to learn how to play basketball, and that's the way he connects with society. That's what Brad Torgerson wrote. And then, as you mentioned, Larry had Larry did a shooter story about competitive shooting, and uh, Dave Farland did a hunting story, and and one of the most unique ones that was kind of fun was uh, um, Dean Smith did a golf story, where there's basically people, oh, yeah, there's two, there's two, schools, two schools of golf have developed, one that plays by Earth gravitational rules, and the one one that plays by non-Earth gravitational rules, and they decide to see which game is better by holding the competition on the moon where it kind of evens the playing field because it's kind of partway between what they're used to and say, okay, let's see who wins. Who, who's really, who are the better golfers? The ones that play with the gravity or the ones who don't. And so, you know, it's kind of an interesting uh, take on the whole competition thing because you see that. Don't forget, too, which is the don't don't ahead, uh, neglect to mention Esther's story too. Yeah. Go ahead. Esther's oh. story is just a riot. It's fabulous. The cheerleaders. About the cheerleaders, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the cheerleaders. I love that story. Oh, it's adorable. Imagine cheerleading to the death, then you've got Esther's story. Cheerleading to the death, told with the great (laughs) wit and dry humor of of Esther Friesen. Yeah, um, Bane Bane folks will know her from um, the Chicks in Chainmail series. And yeah, it's it's cheerleading. That was hilarious. She nails the... um, I mean, she kind of makes it up because it's, uh, you know, science fiction, but the, she gets that like cheerleader vernacular down and it's just, it's, it's very charming. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it plays on kind of some of the conceits that all sports have. All the, you know, the fact that we all kind of have superstitions in sports and certain traditions that almost feel like religious rights that rise up in sports, you know. People who don't watch their jock step for 50 games because they're winning is some ridiculous. So, you know, they, they got the, you know, the, the sacred pom-poms and, you know, all these kind of things. They're, they're, they're silly, but yet they, they inspire something in the players so they become part of the sport. She kind of plays off on that really well. And there's a, there's a couple of different stories as well that do that that are, you know, good. Uh, one of the, actually one of the most unique stories, uh, is, uh, Chris Rush did, uh, I forgot about her scavenger hunt, but she has a unique, scavenger hunt that goes on that is set in kind of a library yeah that one uh yeah for people who are uh fans of books as objects i think um they will enjoy that one uh it's pretty pretty fun and then we did mention the gene wolf which is uh, what did you say it's softball played with speedboats right uh, yeah, imagine if so, you're playing softball so. and you have to run the bases on a speedboat kind of thing and they're playing as a result on the water. They're playing on a more massive field, and everything's got to blow it up. And it adds all this element. That was a story that Gene had done. It had been published a decade or so ago, and hadn't been ever done in an anthology. So it was another one where I got basically like a new story that a lot of people hadn't seen yet. So it was a really good thing. I also mentioned our one of our debut writers, Lee Cardinal, his first professional sales, told me a story about 
downhill figure skating, which is an invented sport. But he said, imagine if you do figure skating downhill and you still have to do all the fancy things with figure skating. It would get a lot more hairy, so to speak. So it's a fun story. So as we say in the in the ad copy, all that and more exclamation point because well that's not everything we've got. There's 20 stories in there, and um, like you said, they cover a wide variety of sports. Um, so, well, um, does anyone else have anything they wanted to add that I did not hit on or uh, touch on? Uh, if not, we will uh, wrap it up here. Well, the book's available tomorrow, and it's available trade paperback and ebook. You probably get a ton of and a great cover. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and this is a, uh, yeah, um, as Brian's saying, yes, the book will, yeah, um, the book will be available uh, June 7th, or this will air actually after, on Friday, so it will have been available for a few days, so uh, if you have not picked it up yet when you're hearing the sound of my voice, it's out in trade paperback and ebook now, uh, you can go to baneebooks.com or uh, your favorite retailer and pick it up, and uh, yeah, it's got a fun cover and this is a um a new artist to bane so i think it fits well in the bane family but it is someone uh, if you're a frequent bane reader you have not uh you've not seen this uh this this artwork before uh, all right folks well that is galactic games as we said it is edited by brian thomas schmidt and it is out now uh, i just want to thank everyone for being on brian as well as mike resnick uh, Louise Marley and Gray Reinhardt. Uh, thank you guys so much for being on, and uh, we'll hopefully talk to you next time we do one of these. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sounds good. Thanks, Dave. Mike. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the Rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad, even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. The floor fish submerged like a mass of sludge slipping into the channel. Suction tugged at Daniel, but because the fish's body shaped itself to the water, it was much less of a problem than what a sinking ship of similar size would have caused. The fish left behind an effluvium of ancient mud, cloying and slightly sulfurous. Something lifted briefly above the undulating weed, then slipped back. Daniel knew what Hogg had seen from the height of the boat. He knew why Hogg was worried, too. Daniel splashed, hoping that he was moving toward the boat as Hogg had ordered. It wasn't a very effective way to proceed, but he wasn't about to stretch his legs out behind him to backstroke properly. That would put his bare, kicking feet very close to the head of the wolf eel, and the predator's jaws were armed with six-inch fangs. Wolf eels attached their sucker tails to floor fish, 
They didn't harm or even affect the huge scavenger. But when the giant maw rooted up some lesser muck-dweller, the eel snatched it for a meal. This was an extremely large floor fish, even for an adult. And the eel was a similarly impressive member of its species. Because its jaws and belly expanded, it could easily ingest prey the size of an average-sized man. I got the lure set to female eel, Hogg said in a hoarse whisper. If it figures you're a female, it likely won't try to eat you. Just keep coming back. I don't want to foul the prop in the weed, but I will if I have to. I don't especially want to be buggered by an eel either, Daniel said. It wasn't a real concern. Like other fish, the eels sprayed milt onto the eggs the female had just extruded into the sea. But it made Hogg chuckle, which is what Daniel had intended. Hogg would rather die than let anything harm the young master. Daniel didn't want him to leap into the eel's jaws as the best way of saving his charge. Daniel continued to splash. He didn't look around. He couldn't see anything through the agitated water. Perhaps Hogg could see more. They were using the lure's field to override the bioelectrical field of Daniel's own body. Hogg was, at least. It wouldn't have occurred to Daniel to do that. He'd certainly think of it should the situation arise again. Now, hold the lure in your left hand and hook your right over the gunnel, Hogg said, speaking from just above Daniel's head. He was again as calm as he had been years before, while teaching his young charge to squeeze rather than jerk his trigger. When you're ready, you'll swing up and I'll haul you aboard. No problem at all for a strong young lad like you, right? No problem, Daniel whispered. His attendance at Temple was sporadic at best, but he really would try to improve in the future. Daniel's hair brushed the skiff's hull. He fumbled with his right hand, bicycling his legs to keep him up until he could grip a thwart. He took a deep breath and another, consciously trying to slow his heart rate. He had only had one glimpse of the eel. It had seemed huge. Even allowing for the exaggeration of fear, it was probably ten feet long. Its slender body trailed behind a head the size of a bushel basket. Hogg gripped Daniel's left arm just above the elbow. He wasn't putting any pressure on the contact yet. On three, Daniel said. One, two, three. Water exploded as Daniel rolled up and over the gunnel. The eel must have come after him because Hogg shouted and Daniel heard the crunch as Hogg's right arm drove the trident through the bones of the creature's skull. Daniel rolled into the belly of the skiff. Hogg had gotten out of his way, though Daniel wasn't sure how. He wasn't even sure he still had both legs, and his hands were locked together in mutual reassurance. Bloody hell, that was a bad one. The skiff was rocking violently. Hogg shoved them backward and released the shaft of the harpoon. The little motor was backing with all the power it had available, ignoring the risk of weed clogging its intake. Daniel raised his head to look over the gunnel. The shaft flailed back and forth, sometimes under the surface, as the fatally injured eel curvetted. The body behind the soot-colored head was so nearly transparent that Daniel could make out the bones of the skeleton. His guess of ten feet long had been conservative. This eel was probably big enough to have swallowed the skiff itself along with the two men. I wonder what the record for a wolf eel is, Daniel said. Taken by hand, I mean. You want this one as a trophy, Hogg said hoarsely. Then you're going to have to come back by yourself and get it.
Me, I'm heading for home, and when I get there, I'm going to get very drunk. Yes, said Daniel. I think that's a good plan for both of us. Xenos on Cinnabar Lady Adele Mundy She had been released from the RCN when her ship was paid off, so she could not properly use her naval rank of signals officer, stood before one of the chest-high reading tables in the long room of the Navy House archives. Her personal data unit sat to the left on the table. To the right was the small stack of ship's logs which she was copying and in the center was a flat conversion device eight inches deep by ten inches across. The converter was a specialist item and would have cost a great deal to buy even if she could have found one for sale. This one had been given her as an adjunct to her work for her other employer, Mistress Bernice Sand, the head of Cinnabar's intelligence service, or at least one branch of it. Adele didn't think she was flattering herself to believe that she was in her way Mistress Sand's most effective agent she was fairly certain that the intelligence arms of the Alliance of Free Stars, the Republic's greatest rival and frequent enemy, would have agreed with that assessment. She put another log in the converter. This was a chip recording, but the format was unique in Adele's experience and may not have been common some 700 years ago when, according to the label, the officers of a freighter out of Palafox created it. The converter whined for a moment, then projected the first entries through the data unit's holographic display for Adele to view while the remainder of the contents was stored. She wasn't trying to absorb all the data on the logs at this moment, but neither was she merely a copyist. She had repeatedly found cases where the labels slapped on quickly by disinterested clerks were seriously in error. Adele smiled faintly. The clerks probably thought that items which hadn't been incorporated into the general database were of no value. It was true that the logs were valueless except to someone who was very skilled and very obsessive. Even the skilled, obsessive Adele Mundy was unlikely to find any data that she would use during the however many further years of her life. On the other hand, she had nothing better to do, and she liked gathering data. There was probably nothing she liked more. Tovera, Adele's servant, stood at the desk to Adele's left, nearer the entrance. Besides the clerk, a naval rating, they had been the only people present in the long room. But an RCN midshipman, wearing her second-class uniform, her greys, had entered and was talking to the clerk. Tovera moved slightly, facing the doorway. She lifted the lid of the attaché case on her desk, just enough to reach inside. Adele was by now too familiar with Tovera's ways to be surprised. She didn't even smile. Tovera wasn't precisely paranoid, but she saw no reason why an unfamiliar midshipman might not intend to kill her mistress. Therefore, she prepared against the possibility. After all, Tovera had nothing better to do either, and she had never cared about the reasons why she was told to kill someone. She had been trained by the Fifth Bureau, the intelligence service which reported directly to Garantor Pora, the autocrat of the Alliance. Tovera had changed her allegiance from the Alliance to Adel Mundi personally, but she continued to follow her training. Tovera did most things by rote. She was a sociopath and far too intelligent to make social decisions for herself. She would have been executed long since if she had done that, because she generally saw the simplest way out of a problem as being to kill the person making the problem. So long as Tovera did as Adele directed, she would remain within socially acceptable norms.
Thus far, obeying Adele had given Tovera ample opportunity to kill people, which she liked to do as much as she could be said to like anything. Well, midshipman, the clerk said, raising his voice enough to be heard where Adele stood, thirty feet away. I guess despite your exalted rank, you're going to have to check the catalogue just like lesser mortals. And for that, you'll have to go back up to the lobby because the terminal down here is on the blink. The catalogue only lists the logs of the Princess Cecile while the Corvette was on the RCN list, the midshipman said. I know that she sailed a number of times in private commission, and I've heard that copies of those logs were deposited with Navy House also. In theory, the midshipman ranked a naval rating. In practice, she was probably on half pay since so many ships had been laid up after the Treaty of Amiens, and nothing was of lower importance to the RCN bureaucracy than a midshipman on the beach. The clerk shrugged. Could be, honey, he said. You're welcome to look to your little heart's content. Excuse me, mistress, Adele called. She had personal experience with poverty, since the Monday wealth had escheated to the Republic when her parents were executed. Besides which, she disliked people who didn't do their jobs. If you'll come back here, I may be able to help you. As she had expected, her helpfulness irritated the clerk. He gave Adele a black look and returned to his desk display. He was watching a sporting event, though Adele, who had checked it out of habit, couldn't imagine why a score of men, they were all men, were shoving a stone quoit up and down a grass field. This basement area of the archives was more a storage room than a library in proper form. Floor-to-ceiling cages of woven wire fencing marched down both sides of the room. Inside each were file cabinets, but boxes of additional material were stacked on the floors of many cages, particularly those near the entrance. People using the archives could switch on direct lighting to supplement the glow strips in the arched concrete ceiling. But not all the lights worked. Specifically, the cage beside the desk where Adele was working didn't have working internal lights. The unsorted boxes within were lumps in shadow. The midshipman strode past the clerk's desk without looking back. She was petite and dark-haired, and she was obviously angry. It's ridiculous that an RCN officer has to depend on the courtesy of a private scholar to find something in RCN archives, she said, probably hoping that her voice would carry to where the clerk sat. Still, if you know where the logs might be stored, mistress, that's the main thing. I'd be very grateful. Her name tag read, Hale. She had probably bought her greys used, because they had more wear than someone only a few years out of the academy was likely to have given them. I think you'll find them in there, Adele said in a neutral voice, pointing. In the second box, down on the left-hand stack, the metal one. Tovera, help her with your hand light. Tovera opened the wire gate and gestured the midshipmen into the cage. They could be padlocked, but most of them were not. Hale followed Tavera's narrow beam of light, lifted off the covering box, and took out the clear container within the one indicated. Perfect, Hale said after a glance. They're on RCN standard chips, and it looks like they're all of them here, and in order. Adele smiled faintly. A stranger like Hale probably wouldn't have recognized the expression if she had even noticed it. Hale came out, and Tovera closed the cage behind her. I suppose you're wondering about these, Hale said as she set the chips on a table across the aisle from Adele. She didn't appear to have noticed Tovera. Adele's servant excelled in being unobtrusive in any normal social setting. 
You see, I was in the academy with two midshipmen who were assigned to Captain Leary. Only he wasn't a captain then. You know, the famous one? Tovera didn't snicker. Adele nodded expressionlessly. She did indeed know Captain Leary. Well, I knew them, Hales said. She took an ordinary chip reader out of its belt pouch and set it on her table. One was pretty sharp, I'll grant, but the other always struck me as being as thick as two short planks. But they've both been promoted to lieutenant with no interest behind them. She shrugged. I've got a lot of time on my hands since the peace, she said. So I thought maybe if I studied the logbooks, I could figure out how they did it. Besides being lucky to serve under Captain Leary, I mean. You'd be talking about Blantyre and Corey, I presume, Adele said. Hale's age made the identification certain, but she still had to resist her desire to check Naval Academy class lists. I'll remind you that Blantyre's luck led to her being killed two years ago. You knew Blantyre then? Hale said in surprise. I didn't realize. Adele nodded again. She was wearing a plain civilian business suit in dark blue. The light here wasn't good enough for anyone but a couturier to realize that the outfit was of top quality. Hale had assumed that she was a private scholar, and Adele hadn't bothered to correct her. Actually, she supposed she was a private scholar at the moment. Blantyre struck me as the best kind of RCN officer, Adele said, competent in astrogation and other technical subjects, and a fighting officer above all else. But as I said, killed in battle. Everybody dies, mistress, Hale said. Very few die with a record equal to Blantyre's. She eyed Adele more carefully, but she clearly didn't see anything more than she had at first glance. Tovera wasn't the only one who remained unobtrusive under most circumstances. Blantyre and I were friends, Hale said. I'm not the sort to go put a bouquet on her grave. On her cenotaph, Adele corrected silently. Blantyre's body had been vaporized off Cacique, along with those of fifty-odd of her shipmates. But I figure if I can use her record to learn how to be a better RCN officer, that's a better memorial anyway, and... Hale straightened slightly, as though she were coming to attention for a reviewing officer. You're right about her. When you beat Blantyre on the battle board, you knew you'd done something. But more often than not, she beat me. Adele smiled very faintly at the pride in the midshipman's voice, albeit probably justifiable pride. She wouldn't have thought anyone could read the expression, but apparently Hale did, because she flushed slightly. Please excuse my discourtesy, she said, extending her hand. I'm Lucinda Hale. Adele shook her hand with a carefully gauged polite pressure. I am Lady Mundy, she said using her civilian rank rather than the one Hale might have noticed in the logs of Daniel's RCN commissions. I'm pleased to have met you, Mistress Hale. Her personal data unit flashed a silent signal. Adele glanced at it, reading the oral message which had been converted to text as she preferred it. Yes, all right, she replied. I should be there within the hour. Tovera was efficiently replacing the set of logs in the file drawer from which they had come. She didn't know anything about the summons, but she knew that her mistress wouldn't leave the archive until she had at least restored it to the condition in which she had found it. Hale looked as though she might be going to speak further, but in the end she merely nodded. She slipped into her reader the first of the logs of the private yacht Princess Cecile, 
owned and commanded by Captain Daniel Leary. Adele was glad. She didn't want to insult the young woman, but she didn't have time for conversation. As Adele left the long room, she started to put her personal data unit away and the thigh pocket tailored into her trousers. Unexpectedly, the clerk snarled. You know, it's traditional to leave a little something for the attendant, but I suppose you're too high and mighty to worry about that. Adele stopped and looked at him, then sat on one of the three chairs in the anteroom. They were standard RCN designs of pressed steel and steel mesh, identical to those of any warship, save that these were not bolted to the deck. She brought up the data unit. Your name is Dozois, said Adele. She wasn't in quite as much of a hurry as she had thought. Yes, Tech 5 Dozois. The data unit's holographic screen was a blur to anyone save the user herself. Adele had a control wand in either hand. She found them the quickest and most accurate form of entry and access. She often used her data unit as a remote control device for other units. She was doing so now with the clerk's terminal, though he wasn't aware of the fact yet. What do you care what my name is, the clerk said. He got to his feet. Hey, what do you think you're doing? Leaving, Adele said, standing up again and putting the data unit away. She was almost to the stairwell before Tovera turned and followed her. I thought he might try to stop us, said Tovera regretfully. Well, maybe he'll be there the next time we visit. I doubt it, Adele said as her boots scuffed briskly up the concrete steps to the outside entrance. He just sent a message to his immediate superior, copying the chief of the Navy board, detailing his failures of performance, and adding that he keeps a bottle of gin in his desk. I didn't see the gin, Tovera said. She was in front again so that she could step into the street ahead of her mistress. Nor did I, said Adele. But I smelled it on his breath when he was shouting at me. She gestured toward the tram stop in front of Navy House. We're going to the shippers and merchants treasury to meet Deirdre Leary. I don't know the intended purpose of the meeting. A tram pulled up at the stop, swaying slightly on its overhead monorail as it disgorged men and women in their best RCN uniforms. Those who had enough rank to have afforded a set wore their whites, often too tight for them now. They would be uncomfortable, waiting in the hall for an assignment clerk to call their name, or most likely not to call their name. Adele and her servant got on when the car had emptied. Tovera punched the address of the bank into the routing computer. Deirdre Leary was Daniel's older sister and Adele's banker. She was also the representative of Quarter Leary and the Leary family interests to both Daniel and Adele. Daniel had broken violently with his father at age 16. As for Adele, if she ever came face to face with the man who had ordered her family's slaughter, she would shoot him dead. Adele could imagine many reasons for Deirdre to request a meeting at short notice. No notice, in fact. None of the possibilities were good. That is the latest entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, thanks to David F. Sharirod, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a voluminous warehouse filled with drugstore pranks and three-stage candy rockets, plus the ongoing admiration, thanks, and praise of a grateful star nation to Brian Thomas Schmidt, 
Louise Marley, Mike Resnick, and Gray Reinhardt, editor and authors of Galactic Games. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.